0: And remain standing and turn with me now to the Sermon Scripture. Uh, You'll find it this evening uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you were with us uh, last uh, Lord's Day evening, we did begin uh, chapter 5 of 1 Timothy uh, last Sunday evening, uh, looking together at verses 1 and 2, make a brief reference uh, to that passage again tonight. And uh, we'll read uh, verses 3 through 8 for this evening. Shall we give our attention now to God's uh, holy, inspired, and inerrant word? Uh, Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household... He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Amen. May God add his blessing to his word. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Again, our Father, we are reminded of the tremendous blessing that we have because we have your word, because you are a God who has spoken. We thank you that we have it in a language that we can understand, that you have given us minds and bodies to understand and to apply it. And most of all, we thank you now and we pray especially that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, to our hearts that we might receive with joy and with conviction to obey uh, this portion of your Holy Word given to us for our good. And this we ask for your eternal glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Paul's theme in this letter uh, to Timothy, as you know, has been uh, how Timothy, uh, as a minister, and by extension, how all church members ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. Uh, Last Lord's Day, we looked together at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, Paul's exhortation to Timothy to recognize that there is a way that an older man in the church is to be treated uh, as a father, uh, a younger man uh, as a brother, uh, an older woman, uh, she is to be treated uh, as a mother, and a younger woman as a sister, and as he concluded, uh, with all or with complete uh, purity. Uh, Paul's concerns were wide in scope, And now he turns his attention to the widows in the church. It's a reminder that though they lived nearly 2,000 years ago, the church in Ephesus was in many ways very much like our own. There was a diversity of people in the congregation, just as there is in ours. There are men and there are women in the church. Some of us are young. Some of us are old. Some are married, some are single, some are financially well cared for, some are not. Some are even widowers, widows and widowers. And in all of this, we are just like the church in Ephesus. And like that church, it is fundamentally important that we must learn to manage and teach our children to manage our interactions with one another within the church in appropriate ways to the people of God. And all around, these differences are all manner of temptations. We can't get into them tonight, but not least of these temptations is to overlook the elderly and to give preference to the young. as has been the practice, unfortunately, of so many churches in our day. And so from the outset, it is good for us to acknowledge the differences among us, to recognize their importance, to embrace the obligations that come with those differences, to prepare our children to meet those obligations by instilling in them the kinds of attitudes and behaviors that will give them strength uh, to face those temptations. And our church, like Every Christian church ought to be a place where the mature folk, uh, the elderly members, are treated with the respect and the regard and the dignity which their age and life experience (coughs) deserves. And where men are particularly careful in their interactions with women. And where generosity and sound judgment are exercised. At one and the same time. This is all very important. And it is all, as you will see, highly practical. So let's consider what the text has to say about widows. Verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. Now, you see the word honor. And what comes to mind? Perhaps, honor your father and your mother. The fifth commandment, the word used here, incidentally, it is related to Timothy's name. The word used here to honor is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word to honor as found in Exodus 20 in the fifth commandment. And it is used, for example, in what you might consider a New Testament parallel passage, although, of course, it would have been written in Greek, but that passage in Ephesians 6, where Paul repeats the fifth commandment in his exhortations to children in the church and says to them, of course, honor your father and your mother. Same Greek word, same Greek verb as here. So there is a certain honor, respect, respect, regard that is to be given to widows by virtue of who they are, their experience in life, their life situation, and the numerous challenges that they face. In the times of the early church, when Paul is writing, women had difficulty finding gainful employment. There was no unemployment insurance to fall back on, let alone the elaborate a social safety net that is in place in our society. And you know that the challenge of caring for widows had already come up very early in the church in Jerusalem, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 6, in light of the controversy that erupted over the apparent overlooking of the Grecian widows in the church. It is a significant thing, is it not, that the origin of the diaconate occurred over the ministry of the widows and the necessity of caring for them. And so it's a reminder that the people of God has always have always believed that God has a place a special place in his heart for widows. We saw that in our old testament readings tonight. God's people have believed that this required special compassion and attention, and assistance where widows were concerned, and that there were widows, just as there have always been widows numbered among the people of God. And I only find that this bears mentioning today because it seems like there are any number of youthful churches today, or churches that purposely target young adults or singles, or young marrieds, in which it seems almost unfathomable to me that there would be widows. And I'm not sure how widows, for example, enjoy uh, the rock music uh, and the bright lights shining at them from the front. One of the advantages of our relatively quiet and peaceful church, widows don't mind it. But this has to be considered Uh, This trend, I think, an aberration from the norm. Uh, The churches we have known have always been multi-generational. There have been children and parents and grandparents and often great-grandparents, a great big family of all ages, and these churches have all had widows. The Bible has a lot to say about widows and the church's responsibility for them. The ancient world was a hard place for widows unless they were well-to-do, and of course, very few of them were. A woman who lost her husband usually lost her means of support. She often lost her home as well and her social position. And there are certainly Christian widows today who will tell you that that is largely their experience, that not much has changed from that day to this. But remember, the Bible describes the Lord in Psalm 68, 5, as the defender of widows. And the law of God made special provision for them and their welfare. And early on, as we have said, the church knew it was responsible for widows. James, you remember, when he defines pure an undefiled religion describes it in terms of looking after orphans and widows in their distress. Now today, uh, widows have some considerable safeguards. There is social security. There are pensions. Uh, their or their deceased husbands. Uh, retirement savings. And yet for many reasons, many still find themselves destitute add to that of course the breakdown of the family and rampant divorce and many women find themselves as heads of households and they can barely make ends meet and so when paul says honor widows verse three who are really widows might sound strange to you he does not mean you know whose husbands are really dead That's silly, I know, but I'm making a point. What he means is this. Honor and care for those widows who are truly in need. And we can also say then that not every widow requires the church's financial support. The phrase really widows or truly widows will occur again in verse 5. And again in verse 16, the woman who is really a widow or truly a widow, by Paul's definition, who is truly in need of the church's support, is truly a widow in the sense that she is alone and she has no one to care for her. And so there were widows and then there were those who were really widows. The former had means and support and were not entitled to the church's financial support. The latter were alone. They were destitute. They were needy. They were not only now without husband, but without children and grandchildren and family to support them. And, of course, lacking the means to support herself. These are the true widows of whom Paul speaks And they are entitled to the support and care of the church. Now what verse 4 makes clear is this. It is only right that children and grandchildren should look after their parents. And God has made it clear in his law that he expects children to honor their parents. And that honor certainly includes and requires financial support for a widowed mother. Now, we have often said that the practical extension of the fifth commandment goes like this, that to honor your father and your mother when you are young means to respect and obey them. But when you are grown and your parents are aging, to honor your father and your mother, the fifth commandment still applies, but it means to primarily extend care and financial support to them. Now, it was not always the case, of course, that the elderly lived alone or that they lived in retirement homes or in convalescent homes. It was traditionally the case that they lived with their children and their grandchildren, many generations uh, under one roof. And why? Well, largely because the people of old understood largely the requirements and applications of God's commandments. And I'm not suggesting at all that professional care is never warranted, of course. I'm simply observing that what used to be commonplace is now in our society quite unusual. And I'm also stating the obvious, that to maintain two households is considerably more expensive than the maintenance of one. And so verse 4 tells us very clearly the first line of defense for the widow is the family, not the church. It is the living children and grandchildren, if there are any. They are the ones who should take it upon themselves to see that the widow is cared for. And they should be willing to pay it back as it were. For isn't that the language he uses to repay their parents. Now, for some of the young people tonight, there aren't too many of you here tonight, to repay your parents maybe conjures up another idea. You know, they've been strict and tough on me. I'm going to get them back. I'm going to repay them someday. But look at the passage. Maybe that's what you want to do, but you know what he means. To repay them is to pay back the debt of gratitude you owe them for all they provided for you when you were young. And clearly, you can see what Paul has in mind is adult children caring for their parents and grandparents as they age and being willing to sacrifice certain elements of their lifestyle to do so before they go to the church for assistance. And isn't it interesting, just a side note, in verse 4, that just as little children are told that when they honor and obey their parents, this is good and well-pleasing to the Lord. So when adult children are told that when they care for their aging parents, this too, Paul says, look at verse 4, is good and acceptable before God or in the sight of God. And so it becomes clear then The true widow is one who is left alone, is destitute, lacks the means to support herself, and lacks the family structure and support afforded to other widows. But that is not at all that it it means to be truly a widow and to be entitled to the church's financial assistance. Notice verse 5, she trusts in God. She prays night and day with supplication. She is an earnest Christian. She is seeking to live a faithful Christian life. She shows that she trusts in God and is a woman of prayer. She's not someone who simply wants the financial support of the church so that she can live as she pleases. Verse 6, but she who lives in pleasure is dead, might as well be, spiritually speaking, even while she lives. In other words, the church is not obligated to provide regular assistance for anyone and everyone, regardless of the circumstances. The church is to look carefully at the faith and the life of the one expressing need, and to practice judgment and discernment in making such decisions. Now consider verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is a startling verse. This is a well-known verse. This is an oft-quoted verse, and I think often taken out of context. The context, notice, is not specifically, for example, a man who does not work and is not industrious and therefore fails to provide for the basic needs of his household. Now, I do think the Bible has plenty to say about that situation, but the context here, what is clearly in view is the failure of Christians to provide for elderly widows, that is, for their mothers and grandmothers who are widows. If they have them and they see their need and are not willing to provide for them, Paul says, that is such a serious matter, that is such an offense to the basic teachings of the Bible, that such a one has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever, the one who sees mom or grandma or mother-in-law or grandma-in-law widowed and in need and has the means and does nothing. Now, how can Paul say this? How can he make such a bold statement unless caring for aging parents were a fundamental part of the faith of the Bible. And of course, he's saying that that's exactly what it is. It is enshrined, after all, in the Ten Commandments. And what shame and scorn he heaps upon the professing Christians who go about their life indifferent to the needs of their parents, all the while... Pagans and unbelievers know instinctively and are more diligent in the care of their parents. Now let me pause and say that there are many wonderful positive examples in this church of the encouragement that Paul is giving. I could name many of them tonight. Uh, There are those in this church family who have taken their elderly aging parents in to live with them and have made many sacrifices to do that. Uh, Many of you go visit your aging parents and are with them regularly to care for them. You're watching out for their needs. You're asking them if there's anything that you can do for them, and you are very involved in care for them. It is a tremendous encouragement to the wider church. It is a wonderful witness and testimony for the people of God. But beloved, don't let it ever be said, don't let it ever be said, and don't let it ever be the case that unbelievers and pagans do more than the believers for their aging parents. Uh, Let us who believe and who profess Christ see to it that we do diligently attend to this grave responsibility. And so if Roman law provided for widows, if even pagans know to care for their parents, then Christians, of all people, certainly should excel in the discharge of this obligation. It pleases God. It fulfills our obligation to our parents. It adorns our faith. It provides a witness for Christ to the community. And as Paul says, and will say in verse 16, it prevents the church from being burdened with an expense that ought to be met by somebody else. And the occasion for this stern language almost certainly suggests that there was a failure to meet this obligation in the Ephesian church, a failure that needed to be addressed, and that's why he does so. Now, there are uh, any number of implications of this sharp reminder of our duty for our parents and the duty also of husbands uh, for their wives, because husbands, let me remind you, uh, the vast majority of us men will be outlived by our wives. That's what the statistics say. Uh, A life insurance policy uh, is a very good idea, Uh, a program of savings, For retirement, these are among the implications. Gentlemen, have you provided for your family in the event of your death, in the event of the loss of your income? Single mothers, of whom there are a growing number, of course have similar responsibilities for their children. Has someone been appointed to be a guardian and to care for them should you die? But it means as well, for example, that if our parents should become infirm, and many of them do in a culture like ours, where people regularly live now to old age, well into 80s and 90s, uh, we need to care for them as we are able. If they need the care of a nursing facility, as happens often, we're not to feel free to abandon them to the care of others. And, and so it goes. But there was a saying in early Christianity, it is good to be old if one is a Christian. And the reason they said that is that there were people in the church who would care for you and they would do it lovingly. And it was not regularly the case in the culture at large. You may be left wondering, it's a question of practicality, since we have such a significant social safety net in American society today, and with the wonderful commitment so many of you have made to care for your aging parents, and without a formal list or order of widows, as Paul will speak about in the next section, what should we be doing, if anything, as a congregation uh, to care for widows? It's a question you should be asking. It's a question any Bible believing Uh, Christian who takes the teaching of the Bible so seriously should ask? The fact is, your deacons are dealing with these sorts of questions all the time. Who ought to receive support? Who ought to receive support on a one-time basis? Who ought to receive support on a regular basis? Uh, What do we do with someone who needs help and is a professing Christian but seems to have no real interest in living a faithful Christian life? What do we do with someone, for example, who makes a request but uh, rarely comes to church, or who once attended a while ago, but it has been a very long time? Uh, This is the stuff of deacons' meetings and deacons' discussions. And what is more, I might add, that a A great deal of the church's important ministry is provided by the women of this and so many congregations. They don't do it in any formal capacity, but they are busy caring for elderly women. They are busy caring for widows. They visit them. They pray with them. They write cards to encourage them. They go to their homes and have Bible studies with them. There's much going on behind the scenes that many of us are never aware of and will never be aware of, just as it should be, I suppose. But still many questions are being asked, and they're being asked in the church and in society. Who should and who should not qualify for welfare? We worry about the abuse of generosity, asking for money with no follow-through on the other end. We worry about the effect that the welfare state has upon the family. And we all have different personal circumstances around us. Some marriages are intact, faithful, and happy. Both husband and wife will live to a ripe old age. Finances have, have been handled responsibly. The children are long gone from the home when one or the other spouse dies and the remaining spouse is well provided for. By God's grace, we see this often in the church. And I've been delighted many times to ask widows in my meetings with them if they are provided for, if they have any needs, financial or otherwise, and to tell me simply, I am well provided for. My husband worked hard. He made good plans. We saved what we could, and I have everything that I need. And that is a blessing. There was insurance, there was savings, there was money in the bank, it still comes in every month, and it was all hers upon her death. It was simple, it was seamless, it caused her a minimum of stress. Gentlemen, consider it your marching orders, because as I say, almost all of you are going to die before your wife does, perhaps well before she does. And young men, don't ever think it's inconsistent with the Christian life to work hard and to earn a living and to save for the future and to be prepared to provide not only for your own family but to help your aging parents. This is how God has ordained things, we're reading, and we are told that it pleases Him and is acceptable in His sight. Now, on the other hand, as you know, Many are not so fortunate, and I've spoken to many of them as well. Uh, The breadwinner died young, or he abandoned the marriage, or the family's finances are a mess, or there isn't adequate income to provide for the family that remains, and so on it goes. There's government aid in our day, as there wasn't in the first century, but that can create problems of its own. As you know, it's more lucrative in many instances to remain single rather than to marry if you're on government assistance. Some are reluctant to get a job if having a job will ultimately reduce the family income by reducing what aid is qualified for. And so on the challenges go. But the great principle is clear, and let's leave no doubt about it, dear friends. The church is to be a loving generous, giving body. The church is to care for people and to do so generously and practically. And yes, families are to be at the forefront, the front line, but where that support is lacking, the church must step in. And we have seen it is to provide that care and support and to do so with discrimination and wise judgment. Church is not a charitable organization per se. Many see it that way, but it is not one. It is the body of Christ. Its primary function is the proclamation of the gospel. And its support is not to undermine its basic calling, nor is it to undermine the family obligations that members have for one another, nor is its support to encourage lax or worldly or self-indulgent living. And Paul is saying that the church should be ready to address and deal with these difficult, practical considerations. And you know, there is such a thing, dear friends, as support unwisely given. And support unwisely given can encourage bad behavior. It can undermine the family, and it can destroy the reputation of the church the very reputation of the church that is to be enhanced by its generosity to the needy. So what you see here is that balance in the church between a hard realism of discernment and judgment and a large-hearted charity that is to mark the life of the church. But the church, as generous as God's people are called to be, the church is not called to subsidize sin It is not obligated to help someone live a sinful lifestyle, as verse 6 makes so abundantly clear. On a personal note, um, Heather's parents were remarkably diligent, hardworking, faithful people who are very well uh, provided for now in their early 70s. But Heather and I have said to them, it feels a little funny at times, You know, Mom and Dad, if there is ever a need, if anything ever comes up, if there's any way that we can help you, we want to do that. I think they appreciate that. My mother is a very different story. Uh, She should have been destitute, I think, all things considered. Immigrant to this country uh, from the former Yugoslavia. English, of course, not her first language, no formal Uh, education beyond the eighth grade, no training for a career or a trade. Uh, She worked her years primarily as a waitress in a diner, and she cleaned houses for a living. Uh, By God's remarkable grace, uh, she too is well provided for as she now approaches uh, 80. And I've been encouraged of late, and I've been encouraged by the example of many of you to develop a closer relationship with my aging parents. It's been almost 20 years since we left California, and they've aged in those years, as I have told you. Uh, My sister, who was not a professing Christian, has been much closer those years, and has been more available for my mother especially to provide care. I don't want to be shamed by an unbelieving sibling Uh, I don't want to be less than I ought to be uh, as a son to my parents, whatever ability or time uh, that God may give me. But this example uh, has been uh, encouraged by many in the congregation. The encouragement and admonition has come from the word of God. May we give him glory. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this highly practical and desirable text of your holy word that speaks so realistically to life as it is, life as it is in the world, and life as it is in the church. We are all, in one way or another, O Lord, aging. We will all become more needy Uh, As time goes, thank you for setting up uh, a pattern and giving instruction to the church on how we might navigate these sometimes difficult issues. Uh, For we do need discernment and we need wisdom and judgment to know what to do and to know what is best. But Father, we acknowledge as we think about these practicalities that you are the God of the brokenhearted, you are the God of the lonely, and the afraid, and the afflicted. Your heart is for the widow. You are a father to the fatherless, a husband to the barren woman. And you alone uh, often are joy and hope Uh, to the woman who sits quietly day after day, uh, alone and yet in prayer, and trusting in God. Yeah. Give us uh, then uh, something of your heart, uh, something of your view, something of your desire and your interest uh, for the needy and especially the widow now. for We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.